science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about concern. I know a little something about concern right now. Uh, Last Friday, I got word that one of my loved ones was in hospice. And me and my dog, Wally, had to drive 1,200 miles down from New York to Florida to be with everyone. Unfortunately, when I picked up my rental car to make the drive, it was a bright blue Volkswagen Beetle convertible. And even when you're on a desperate mission in the dead of night, it's hard to take yourself seriously when it's in a car like that. If Paul Revere had to make his ride in a car like that, I don't know that Longfellow would have felt so inspired to write poetry about it. (laughs) But I think our two storytellers today, however, uh, will inspire you. Our first story today is from Andrew Holding. It was recorded in February 2019 at Cambridge Junction in Cambridge, UK. The theme that night was family. In 2012... Kim, my wife, and I were expecting our second daughter. Kim's pregnancy had gone fairly well. There were a few complications, but nothing serious. I had prepared by reading every book, every paper I possibly could. I probably, at that time in my own life, knew more about babies, childbirth, what was going to happen than I ever had before and will ever do again. And that, as a scientist, is how I deal with these things. I learn as much as I can, so I'm prepared. Now, my wife was supportive of this. She's a mathematician. She now works in finance. Her job is to distill down information and to then make predictions about what's going to happen. So she found it useful to have someone to provide that bit of information. So I was there as a convenient data source (laughs) and also to provide the odd hug. Now, we've done this before as well. So I, I, I knew kind of what we're going for. I, I had experience of sleepless nights, both from Lottie and from my time as a PhD student. I had the sterilizer ready. I had the child seat ready. I had everything ready, even the huge pile of newborn nappies. On the 23rd, we came home with our new child. And we settled in. Now, those first few weeks with a newborn child, some people say are boring. Boring is good. Boring means your baby is sleeping when it's meant to sleep, using its nappy when it's meant to use its nappy, eating when it's meant to eat. Boring is good. Boring is normal. Now, Alessandra wasn't exactly the same as her sister. I had this idea that we'd follow the same protocol and the same things would happen, we'd get the same results. Lottie had been the most content and loving child you could have. She was so easygoing. Now, Alessandra was a very needy child. She needed her mother. If she wasn't feeding or sleeping, she had to be cuddled. It was gorgeous, but it left her mother exhausted. I helped where I could. I cooked food. I took the kids out to the park. I changed many nappies, but I couldn't feed her. 
I couldn't be her mum. About two weeks after Alessandro came home, I came down from the upstairs and walked into the kitchen, and Kim was there, and Alessandra was on her shoulder. And there was this beautiful sight. Alessandra was just curled up in a calmer, relaxed way that I hadn't really seen before. If you ask me now, I can tell you that she had the tiniest of baby smiles on her face. If you, if you spend any time with newborn babies, you know that they can't really smile. They just sort of get a curling up at the edge of her lips. It is a special moment. And her mother, Kim, was starting, just starting to relax. And then I asked a question. As I asked it, suddenly my gut wrenched. It's a simple question. When did Alessandra last feed? And then there was a pause. Because both of us, sleep deprived, not really aware of what was going on, realised it was probably a bit too long. And then we started to try and work out what had gone on. Well, where have we been? What had been happening during the day? And we, we realised it had probably been most of the day. And I went over to my daughter and I, I put my arms under hers and lifted her off her mother. As I did, her arm just slipped down her mother's shoulder and fell to her side. All that energy, all that fighting, all the way she would have screamed if I took away from her mother before was gone. She was breathing, but she was absent too. Now what came next should have been obvious. But you don't immediately want to accept it. It's like waking from a nightmare. Except reality is worse than the dream. And then you accept you know you need to you accept you know what needs to be done. And my pulse started to race. Now I have no memory of what happened between the moment I made that decision and the moment I am marching into Addenbrooke's AE with my daughter in a car seat, trying to balance that need for attention with that need to protect my child. We get diverted into the pediatric AE and we sit down. And it could have been 10 seconds. Could have been 10 years. We wait. And a pediatrician comes over and he carefully takes us over to the beds they have there. And it's this green, pale blue, pale green bed. And my daughter, I place her on this bed and she is so tiny compared to that vast expanse. She's curled up and that newborn nappy, which is tiny, dwarfs her. The paediatrician checks, tries to see if he can work out what's going on. He does the basics and he decides there's a possible infection, so decides to take a lumbar puncture. Now he picks up the smallest needle I've ever seen in my life. It's like a hair. And he tries to pierce in between the vertebrae and the spine. And as she does this, you hold your breath too scared to even breathe because you might distract with highly skilled professional who knows exactly what he's doing. And he fails. He tries again and still he can't reach any fluid. This tense moment followed by a deep breath happens three, four, five times. He then concedes it isn't going to happen and 
he omits her daughter to the ward. Except you can't omit an infectious girl to the neonatal ward because there's some very sick children there already and we don't need to add to that. He can't omit her to the baby ward because that's full, so we get directed towards the children's ward. We walk in, it's late at night. I'm looking around and there's little enclaves of light within the darkness, but most of the people have gone to bed. We go to our bay and I sit down and Kim sits next to me. And we put our baby on this bed. And I just see this blue stretcher surrounded by yellows and greens. And she still, despite it being smaller than the last one, looks so fragile and so tiny. And we sit and we don't talk because we both know what the other wants to say. We both want someone to say it's going to be okay. But we both know it might not be. We both don't really know what's going on. We've got no diagnosis. We've got no ideas. I've got no understanding of what's happening. So we sit there in silence for an hour, maybe two. And then I have the hardest decision in my life. Lottie is waiting at home and I have to go and take care of her. And one of us has to stay with my daughter, but it's a hard choice, but it's also not a choice. Because Kim wants to feed our daughter if it's possible, and I can't do that. So the decision's made. I, I get up and I leave. I leave my wife and child alone in a hospital. I head home. I put Lottie to bed, and she's too young to really understand what's going on. She's sleeping in a new bedroom, and she's happy enough. And I go and sit on my bed, and I pull out my phone. Call Kim. It's not getting any better. Um, Alessandra started to have seizures. Kim's worried and the nurses say this is normal, but of course this isn't normal. My wife doesn't know what to do and all I can say is, well, take notes, write down when it happens, take data. A scientist in me speaking, trying to somehow control this situation. Now I head in with Lottie for the next few days. But it becomes a blur. Time is meaningless. Faces come and go. You start to recognise the shift patterns, the rotors. But nothing's changing. And on about that second day, I looked to Kim and said, I just, I need you to take Lottie away for a moment. She protests, but she accepts. And I sit there over my daughter's bed and I the first moment I ever had alone with her. And try and reconcile that could also be the last. I start to grieve. I start to cry and my tears drop down onto her bed. And she is laying there so vulnerable, tubes and monitors on her. And I have no answers. I have no diagnosis. I have no knowledge of what's going to happen. And as I grieve, I realize every single thing I planned, I wanted, I dreamed, may not happen. It's all wiped out. We're just living to the next day. Time and kept moving, but as I say, not much changed. Slowly there were hints. Oxygen meter may 
be taken away or they might just be a little bit more confident about her glucose levels. But we just crept to that day when eventually they discharged us. No answers, no control, no understanding. We took her home. But then every milestone wasn't about her success. It was another data point, another question. Was she going to be okay? This is a girl who lost complete control of her body temperature, her sugar levels, her breathing. She'd had seizures. What harm had it done? And everything became invested in that. Seven years later, every spelling test, she passes success for her to getting back on that path. And every mass test she failed is a question if she's going to make it. It's like an exponential decay. A process which slowly decreases, slowly tends towards zero. But never actually gets there. Thank you. That was Andrew Holding. Andrew is a senior research associate at Cancer Research UK's Cambridge Institute and a fellow of Downing College, Cambridge. His research program brings together his experience of cutting-edge mass spectrometry, DNA, and RNA sequencing techniques with computational biology to investigate the function of the nuclear receptors. Andrew has worked on many science outreach and public engagement projects, including founding and organizing Skeptics in the Pub in Cambridge, which holds monthly talks by various speakers with the aim of highlighting the application of critical thinking and scientific methods. Our next story today is from one of our newest Story Collider producers, Nikisha Roberts-Washington. It was recorded in March 2019 at Caveat in New York City. This show is presented in conjunction with the Dana Foundation's annual Brain Awareness Week, and the theme that night, appropriately, was brain power. So, I'm straightening my desk. Now, to be fair, me straightening my desk is not what some may consider straightening the desk. It is actually more of an organization of piles. I have the books that I'm teaching pile. I have the books that I keep on my desk to make sure I look smart pile. (laughs) I have the papers that I know exactly what these papers are pile. And I have the I don't know exactly what these papers are pile, but I keep them just in case anybody needs them. (laughs) So this particular week is more difficult than others. This week, my mother has been diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. The particular cancer that my mother has is called HER2, H-E-R-2. And this cancer has something to do with estrogen. My mother's doctor, Dr. Kamaraju, looked at me dead in the face with her stern face and her long, wavy black hair and her sensible shoes. And she told me that my mother's prognosis was good, that if my mother followed the course of treatment exactly how she had outlined that my mother would be okay, and I believed her. So this, among many other things, was on my mind while I was straightening my desk. (laughs) Uh, While I was straightening my desk, two students rushed in the room, and one of them had been missing for a while. 
Well, actually, I wasn't really sure if she had been missing or if I had been missing because my mother's appointments fell like raindrops. First, there was one. And then, just like when you're walking down the street and a raindrop falls and hits you and you're not exactly sure if it's raining or not, so you stop and you look around and you're not really sure at first and so you keep going and then you check the pavement and eventually you know that it is indeed raining. My mother's appointments fell like a drenching monsoon. And so my student who has been missing, she's walking over to me and as she's walking to me, I see that her eyes are red and her hair is disheveled. And she comes to me and she puts her arms around my waist and she lays her head on my shoulder. And she says, I have really bad news to tell you. My migraines aren't migraines. The doctor said that I have brain tumors. That I have brain tumors and that they may be cancerous and that I'm going to need surgery. And at this moment, I realize that I don't know really much more about cancer than I knew, than I learned at my mother's appointment. Now see, I had been working with this particular high school group for three years. So I told, I told them for the last three years at the beginning of the year that we will build a relationship of trust and honesty. That this classroom was a place for trust and respect and that we would have an environment where everyone felt safe. And that if they needed an adult, that I would be an adult that they could depend on. And so when my student told me that she has brain tumors, I felt the center of my chest fall to the ground. Kind of like how those cartoons are shot with a cannonball, and then they have that large gaping hole in the center of their chest where you can see clear through to the horizon. And so as I have my head laid on my student's head and she's crying and I'm crying too, and I'm crying for her, and I'm crying for my mother, and I'm just wondering why the world has to be so cruel. And I'm also thinking about what her tumors might be looking like, or might look like, excuse me. I have a very vivid imagination, and so while she's talking about her tumors, I'm imagining my mother's x-ray placed against the wall the tumors are white and roundish against a black plastic. And I imagine that those tumors that my mother has might look like the tumors that my student has, white and roundish, placed in between her gray matter. And I look my student in the eye and I tell her that if you need anything, that if you need anything, not the kind of anything that people say to you and they don't really mean it, but the kind of anything that you know the person means it, that if you need anything, that I will be here for you. And so the days progress and my routine now is I have to take my mom to her doctor's appointments and I'm checking on my student in between uh, the times that I'm there uh, she begins to fall asleep in class more frequently. She cites that she's not sleeping very well at night because her head is hurting uh, at night. And so when during the daytime, she needs to sleep. 
And during this time, my mother, uh, she's showing the signs of chemo. So my mother had to take three different chemos. And with, when the chemos began to show themselves, I knew that my mother would eventually lose her hair. And I didn't think that it would be such a big deal because my mother's hair is very, very short. She keeps it in a short pixie cut and her hair is about the length of your fingertip. And so since she doesn't have very much hair, I didn't think that it would be a big deal, but it was. And it was a big deal when her hair fell away and her eyelashes and her eyebrows. And eventually she couldn't keep her food down and the weight fell away and her nails turned a darkish brown. And my mother, my very, very beautiful mother, and now I'm not just saying that my mother is very beautiful because I too am beautiful. <laughs> uh, I don't wanna make this about me, but <laughs> my very beautiful mother was very self-conscious about how she looked. And so we went to a designer consignment shop and bought her uh, designer silk scarves to cover her head. And my student progressively got worse. She was missing more and more days. Uh, she had lots of doctor's appointments and she was sleeping in class and turning work in late and mostly just not showing up at all. One day I was walking in from lunch and I see my students standing near my classroom against the locker speaking to my colleague and my colleague, as I walk up, asks my student, did you tell her? And my student nods her head, yes. And so from then on, I have someone to commiserate with. My colleague tells me that she's going to contact the social worker to uh, have the social worker call home to tell her mom and her family that there are services that we can provide as a school to help my student make it through. Strangely though, a few days later, I'm driving to go pick my son up from his elementary school and to get there I have to pass another high school. And I see what looks like my student walking angrily, pacing back and forth in front of the school. And my eyesight isn't exactly the best. I've actually gone up to strangers and hugged them because I thought they were someone else. <laughs> And so I thought it would be a bad idea for me to stop in front of this high school and talk to a child that may not be my student. And so <laughs> I decided the next day that I would ask her if that was her. And so I did see her the next day, actually. And I said, so were you at Madison High School? She said, yes. I said, why were you there? And she told me, some girls were gonna jump my cousin and I wanted to make sure that nobody touched her. And I asked her, why, considering your condition, would you go somewhere where you may get into a physical altercation? Why wouldn't you talk to an adult? Why wouldn't you make a better decision? Like, you have all of these decisions that you could have done better with. And I give her my most stern English teacher look and tell her that I'm disappointed and she apologizes and says that she'll take better care of herself and that she'll take better care of situations. And so I'm in my classroom 
and I'm going, I'm packing my bags up actually, and I'm going to go take my mom to another doctor's appointment. And my colleague walks in the room, and she doesn't just walk in the room. So she comes in, and she's actually really, really shocked looking and smiling, and I'm not sure what's going on. I don't know, I have no clue, and she tells me, you are not going to believe this. This is so crazy, you are not going to believe this. And I said, what? Because I need to go take my mom to her appointments, so I really don't have time right now for like something to have come up that I need to take care of. And she says, this is so crazy, you are not going to believe this. <laughs> and uh, clearly, as you can tell, I was pretty impatient with her. And she tells me that the social worker called home to my student's house and that the mother answered the phone and that the mother said, tumor? What tumor? She ain't got no damn tumor. There's nothing wrong with her. <laughs> and so, now I'm shocked and surprised. And I said, she doesn't have a tumor. And she's like, no, no tumor. And in retrospect, I realized that this is the moment that I've been waiting for since I was eight years old. That this is the moment where I could have delivered one of my absolute favorite movie lines. But I didn't realize it then. <laughs> it is not a tumor. <laughs> and so once I got over my shock and surprise, I still have to go take my mom to her appointment. And so I make my way down the hallway and into the stairwell, and I'm at the top of the stairwell, and I see my student on the next landing, and we lock eyes, and then she just keeps walking which is absolutely unheard of. She didn't stop to say hi. She didn't give me a hug like she normally does. And I realized in that moment that she knows I know. And she knows that part of our deal is for us to have an honest relationship. I also realized in that moment that I don't have to worry about her anymore. I don't have to worry about her life. I don't have to worry about her head being shaved, and I don't have to worry about the incisions that will have to come from the surgery, and I don't have to worry about the bloody scabs that will eventually form, and I don't have to worry about the stitches. That she's fine. It's not a tumor. I also realize that now I am free to worry about my mother and I'm free to just walk away and not have such a tight tie to the school. And I can just worry about making sure that my mother survives. Because my student broke our deal. She lied. That was Nakisha Roberts Washington. Nikisha is the owner and creative director of Genre Urban Arts, a platform where artists can become published digitally and in print. 
Pop-up galleries and performances organized by Nikisha via Genre Urban Arts allow everyone in the creative community the ability to develop themselves as artists, become published, and showcase their art through performance and exhibition. Nikisha has been published in Routledge, various literary journals, and anthologies. As I alluded to earlier, on top of all this, Keisha is also one of our newest Story Glider producers, working on our brand new series of shows in Milwaukee. So you can see her out there. Additionally, she will begin work on obtaining a doctoral degree in urban education at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Fiona Calvert, Stephen Puente, Paula Croxon, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Cambridge Junction and Caveat for hosting these shows, and to my dog Wallace for keeping me company over the course of 18 hours of driving. You're a good boy, Wally. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.